Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this sermon series, Church and State, we're going to be exploring the history of the church's transformation from a small Jewish sect into the official religion of the Roman Empire. I hope you enjoy. Our first scripture reading comes to us from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass by that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today. It comes from the Gospel of Luke once again. This is known as the parable of the rich fool. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who set me to be a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, what should I do, for I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich towards God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are doing our sermon series, Church and State, The Rise of Early Christianity. Each week we are looking at the history of the early church, the documents we find in the New Testament, and we are asking the question, what is the church in the first century have to teach us about being the church in the 21st century. For the last couple of weeks, we have been dealing with the second generation of Christians who were around between 70 and 90 AD, and we've been focusing primarily on Jewish Christians and how they've been faring with everything. Today, we're going to take a break from our Jewish Christians, and we're going to take a look at some Gentile Christians. Gentile meaning what? Non-Jew. Okay, so it's our non Jewish friends. Now, next week we will come back to, uh, to our Jewish Christians one last time, and that's the last sermon in the second part of this series. And the second part 
is over. And then we break from this all the way through Lent, and we'll come back to this series again after Lent once Easter is over. And actually, during Lent, we're going to be doing an interesting sermon series called Seven, which is based on the seven deadly sins and the seven cardinal virtues. And so if you want to learn more about that, there's a Chimes article. It's on the front page of it. You can read about the sermon series that we're going to do. But today, we're talking about these Gentile Christians. And unlike Jewish Christians, which are struggling at this point in time, the Gentile Christians, they seem to be doing pretty well, actually. Their numbers are growing, they're thriving, and it would seem that Jesus' movement has penetrated the upper echelon of Roman society. And proof of this actually comes to us in Luke's Gospel. Now, we didn't read the opening lines of Luke's Gospel this morning because I wanted to focus on the parable of the rich fool and the story of Zacchaeus, but let's take a look at this because I think it's actually really important for us. So these are the opening lines, what it says. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. All right, what's the question you should be asking yourself right now? Who is Theophilus? Uh, The million-dollar question. And... Scholars, they're split down the middle on this one. Half of them think that Theophilus is a person, and half of them think that Theophilus is basically terminology used to describe Christians. So that word Theophilus, as a title, you could say that it means, because if you translate it directly out of the Greek, it means friend of God. So if we were to put that in here, this is how it would read. To write an orderly account for you, most excellent friend of God, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Who in here considers himself a friend of God? All right, well, then this gospel was written for you now, wasn't it? However, for the other people who don't think it's a title, but who think that he's a person, there is a lot of people who conjecture around this because it would be a pseudonym that was used. So Theophilus could have been a real person. It's just that Luke was hiding his identity. I tend to be in the camp that Theophilus is a real person. That's where I stand on it. Now, there's a lot of different conjecture as to who Theophilus could have been, but I'm not going to walk you through all those theories because it doesn't matter. I'm just going to tell you what I think and who I think he was, okay? (laughs) So I think that Theophilus was a wealthy Roman citizen, and I think that for a couple of different reasons. There's a lot of context clues that we find in Luke that would tell us that. One thing is that Luke was written for a predominantly Gentile audience. It was not written for the Jews. And because of that, what that tells us is that Theophilus, whoever he was, he started attending some kind of Christian church out in the Roman Empire somewhere. So we don't know which church, obviously, right? We don't know which one it was. But I would say that this church was probably somehow connected with Paul. And the reason I believe that to be true is because Luke also wrote another book of the Bible. What's the other book he wrote? Acts. And Acts talks about the history of the early church. Now in Acts, what's interesting is that Luke takes a lot of time to talk about Paul. 
He didn't have to do that. He could have talked about other people who were in the church at that time, founding other churches around this, but he chooses to talk about Paul. And so what this tells me is that Theophilus, he joins a church that was probably started by a second generation Christian who was somehow connected with one of Paul's original churches. Who knows, Theophilus might have actually gone to one of Paul's original churches. We don't know for sure, but it's certainly connected with Paul. Now, why do I think this guy is wealthy? Well, I think he's wealthy because of the opening lines of the gospel. So in those lines, those opening lines that, that we read, what you're seeing is something that was very common among authors during antiquity, particularly at this time. So if there was somebody who commissioned a work to be written, it was very common for the author in the opening lines of that document to pay homage to their benefactor. In a sense, it's kind of like they're sitting there saying, hey, this is the guy who paid for this, and thank you for giving me a job. I really appreciate that. And that was kind of the whole idea behind it, right? So this is what I think happened. If we put this all together, you have this Roman citizen who had a lot of money. He goes to this church, and he wants to know more about Jesus' life, and he wants to know more about the early church. So he commissions Luke's gospel, and he commissions the book of Acts, which were originally a single unit, but were split up by the early church. Now, Luke's gospel is by far the best written of the four gospels we have in the New Testament. It's by far the best Greek, no doubt about that. So what that tells you is that this guy was very wealthy because he paid good money to have a good author write his gospel. Now, why I find Luke to be so fascinating, though, is how Luke focuses so much on the topic of money. And I mean almost obsessively on the topic of money. Are we all aware in here that Jesus tends to favor the poor over the wealthy? Like, do we know that, generally speaking? Okay. Now, when you get to Luke's gospel, though, Luke takes Jesus' derision towards the wealthy to a whole new level. If you only had Luke's gospel to work off of, and you didn't have the other three, you would think that Jesus loathes the wealthy, like he just can't stand them. And proof of this actually comes to us from the parable of the rich fool. Before I take the time to recap this parable for you though, I'd like to take a moment to give you a little bit of background on the status of the economics that influenced Jesus at the time that he was doing his ministry. This would be in the late 20s of the first century. So essentially what you have to appreciate is that when Jesus was alive, there were about 55 million people in the Roman Empire. And of that 55 million people, the wealthy elite represented about 1.5% of the population, around 825,000 people. Now, among the wealthy elite, there were varying degrees of wealth. Most people had respectable wealth. But you had a smaller minority who actually were plutocrats, who had extreme wealth. Altogether, these wealthy 1.5%, they represented about 20% of the money that was in circulation in the Roman Empire, which means that the remaining 80% was there to be split up among the other 54 million people, which wouldn't have been quite so bad if there had been a really strong middle class. And I'm not trying to say that there wasn't anybody in the middle. There certainly was. There were merchants, and there were entrepreneurs and traders. There were a lot of people 
who actually did okay, but they represented a small minority of that 54 million people. So if we were really just generalizing, we would probably say that there was wealthy, people who had respectable, if not enormous wealth, and then you had the poor, people who basically made meager wages, which was enough for them to survive day to day, but was not enough for them to really prosper. Now add into all of this the fact that when we're talking about the wealthy, they tended to live in urban centers. Just like today, where do the wealthy live? They live in cities, don't they? I mean, people who have a lot of wealth, they live in cities. Well, this is no different back then. And what would happen is these wealthy people, they owned most of the privately held land in the Roman Empire. If you could purchase land, they owned most of it. And a lot of times when they bought land, they didn't go and view the land themselves. They would send out a land manager who would go, back, go and say, hey, I found this piece of land for you. It's a good piece of property. You should purchase it. It'd be good for you. So what this means is that the land manager was the one who would oversee making sure that the land was being utilized. So they would be on the land and they would, of course, if the land was farmable, they would farm it. Or if you had wood that could be taken from it, timber, they would take that. So the whole idea was the land manager dealt with it. So what this tells you is that the wealthy, they didn't know the peasants who were farming their property, had no idea who they were. And they didn't care that many of these people were struggling to survive and struggling to feed their families. It didn't matter to them. Now with this background, let's take a look at the parable of the rich fool. So you have this parable where basically you have a rich man, right? And this rich man, he owns a lot of land. And on his land, he has barns in which he stores grain. Now, what happens is one year, he has an abundant harvest. All this grain comes in to him. And when all this grain comes in, he realizes his barns aren't big enough to hold it all. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to tear down all my barns and I'm going to build bigger ones so that I can store up all of this grain. And he thinks to himself, this is a good idea because I'm going to have a lot of prosperity for many years to come. But Jesus informs us at the end of the parable that this man is about to die. And God comes to this man and says to him, you fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you. And these things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now the implication behind this parable is that you've had pretty good things in this life. You've enjoyed a good life in this world. Your afterlife will not be quite so luxurious. Now, why is it that Jesus feels so confident that God is going to judge this man harshly? If we took that man, we picked him up, the wealthy man, right? And we put him in modern America. Do you think many people in here would fault him for being shrewd with his business practices and storing up a lot of money so that he could have a prosperous lifestyle? No, many of us probably wouldn't. But Jesus clearly has a problem with him. And the reason why comes in the last line of this parable, when Jesus says, so it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. So what you have to appreciate is it's not the fact that this rich man is storing up his grain in barns. That's not what Jesus finds so egregious. The issue is that this man only really cares about himself. And so you have to appreciate, like think for a second. Y'all still with me? You good back here? Okay, good. Okay, we just want to make sure. Okay. So, 
Imagine for a second, who is Jesus' audience? It's peasants, right? The very type of people who are farming land. And more than likely, they didn't own their own land. It was owned by some wealthy person, just like in the parable. So this idea that this rich man would take all of this extra harvest and put it away in barns while they're there starving on that very land that they are farming on their behalf, it would have infuriated them. They would have been really angry hearing this parable because here this man, he has all this grain and he could afford, if he wanted to, to feed their family for years and still have plenty left over and yet he chooses to keep it all for himself. Now it's at this point that I think I need to tell you that this parable, it only appears in Luke's gospel. It doesn't appear in any of the other gospels. You won't find it anywhere else. And who's Jesus, or who's Luke writing to in this? Theophilus. Theophilus. So Theophilus, who is he? He's a wealthy plutocrat who probably owns a lot of land. And by the way, he probably has barns on his land where he holds and stores all of his excess grain. Just like the man in the parable. So, what is Luke trying to say to Theophilus? Because he has a message for him through this parable, doesn't he? What's the message? Well, one message, the overriding message from this, is that if you keep all that money for yourself and you don't serve the needy and you're not rich towards God, well, then your afterlife is not going to be a pretty picture. That's one takeaway, right? All right. The other thing that he's trying to do, though, which is very interesting, is he doesn't just want him to consider his afterlife, what's going to happen to him when he dies. Luke also wants to provide a model for Theophilus of how he can serve the poor with his money. And this is where Zacchaeus comes into play. So we all know the story of Zacchaeus, right? He was a wee little man, right? Like you all know, you remember the song. I'm surprised we didn't sing it today. <laughs> But this story is more than just a story about a short man who can't see Jesus and climbs up into a tree. This is a story about an issue that was pervasive throughout the whole Roman Empire at that time, particularly for the poor. And that issue is taxation. Now, how many of you in here complain about your taxes? Be honest. Be honest if you complain about your taxes. Okay. Right? A lot of us do. But here's the thing. Whatever you complain about with your taxes, it's nothing compared to the taxes that were paid by the people in the first century when they were in the Roman Empire. Nothing. Now I'm going to explain to you how the taxation structure works. I've done this in previous sermons before, but I want to do it again for any of you who may not have been here or who need a refresher. So the way it worked is that you start off in Rome, in Italy, literally, where they would set the amount that they needed to run the Roman government. This was the amount they needed to pay the soldiers and do everything that they needed to do throughout the empire to make sure everything was functioning. So they set that amount. Then they send out to the various provinces that were under their control a bill. And they would say to the provincial leaders, you need to send us this much money. So the provincial leaders, they would go to somebody like Zacchaeus, a chief tax collector, who oversaw all of the local tax collectors, and they would say, okay, we need you to collect this much money. But it wasn't that simple as what you're seeing right there. The problem is that once the bill got sent to the provincial leaders, 
The provincial leaders, when they went to the chief tax collectors, they would inflate the amount that they needed so that they could take a little bit off the top for themselves. Sometimes to run their own government, sometimes just so they could keep it for themselves. Then the chief tax collectors, because they didn't make a salary, they would inflate it a little bit more. And they would say, oh, you need to collect this much when they would say to the local tax collectors, right? Because they needed some for themselves. And then the local tax collectors, because they didn't make a salary either, they would inflate it a little bit more so they could take some off the top for themselves. All told, by the time the local tax collectors are going out to collect the money from the actual people in the Roman Empire, your tax rate could range anywhere from 40 to 90% of your income. It all depends on how much each level of the hierarchy inflates it along the way. And of course, the people who were gouged the worst were the peasants. They couldn't read, they couldn't write, so they couldn't defend themselves and they couldn't argue with the amount they had to pay. And the proportion that they paid, although it was very small in comparison to many other people, it represented a huge proportion of their incomes. So this brings us back to the story of Zacchaeus, right? So Zacchaeus, this wee little man, Jesus comes up to him and says, hey, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And Zacchaeus says, okay. So he goes to Zacchaeus' house and Jesus would have been well aware that this man had benefited from this taxation structure. And if you recall what T.C. read, T.C. says in that scripture that Zacchaeus is labeled as a sinner. Now, why is he a sinner? It's because he's a traitor. That's why he's a sinner in that story. He's a traitor. He turned his back on his own people to serve the Roman government, and he's gouging his fellow Jews so he can live a luxurious lifestyle. But he has this amazing change of heart when he gets to meet Jesus, right? He says, look, Jesus, half of everything I own, I'll give it to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone, I'll give back four times as much. Which causes Jesus to exclaim to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house for he too is a child of Abraham. Again, I think I need to tell you, the story of Zacchaeus, only found in Luke's gospel. It's not found anywhere else. So I pose the question again. What is Luke trying to say to Theophilus with this story? Well, I think it's pretty simple, actually. What he's trying to say is, God gave you all that money and all of that wealth so that you could give it back to those who are less fortunate. Now, you might read that and you might think, yeah, that's a nice idea. You know? That's right. That's what Jesus tells us to do. But it's more than just a nice idea. This is a profound concept. And you have to realize that this is a very important message for an affluent church like ours. These two stories represent two paths that we can take in our lives. So the story of the rich fool, well, that represents a path we can take where we store up treasures for ourselves. Whereas the other path is a path where we can take the resources with which we've been blessed and we can give it back to those who have much, much less. That's the story of Zacchaeus. Now, we know what the consequences will be if we live like the rich fool. Jesus was very clear on that. But what are the consequences if we live like Zacchaeus? Well, the consequences are that we take the money, we give it to those who are in need, and we create God's kingdom here on earth. That's the difference between the two. Now, which one are we supposed to do? 
Just wondering. Which one? I heard it here. We're supposed to do Zacchaeus? Are you guys with the rich fool? What are we with out here? I haven't heard anybody back here. What are you guys with? Zacchaeus, thank you. Okay, I'm glad a few people are with Zacchaeus on this one. Okay, so Zacchaeus, that's the way we're supposed to go, right? Easier said than done, though, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is easier said than done. I have never met anyone who was willing to just sell half their stuff to give the money away to the poor. I've heard of people doing that. I've heard of uber-wealthy people like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. They gave away half their fortunes for the benefit of others. But these guys have billions of dollars. I've never heard of anybody who's middle class just giving away half of what they own to the poor. And I have a feeling if we went around the room and I asked each one of you, are you okay with that? You're going to follow in Zacchaeus' footsteps. Most of you would say, no, thank you. <laughs> and that's true for me as well. I include myself in that category. Now, why is that the case? Why is it that this is the way that we react? Well, I think what we have to realize is that money... And just so you all can see it back there. Money, right? That money is like paper blood. It's like paper blood. Money is often something that dictates whether we live or whether we die. In a sense, money is kind of like a living organism. This is why I made it so big, or I had Brian Larson, if you ever see him around, say thank you to him, because he had to piece this all together. That's why I wanted to be so big, because it's like a living thing. That's why I wanted you to think of it that way. It's like a living thing. And if I were to compare it to a living organism that we know well, I think the best comparison would be that it's like a virus in some ways. Because money can infect you, can't it? Okay, so money, it can infect you in a couple of different ways. Money can infect you from the outside if you have too little money. So if you don't have enough money, then you can't afford to eat, you can't afford clothing, you can't afford housing, you can't afford education, you can't afford medicine. And it prevents you from leading a productive life. Indeed, too little money can actually kill you, right? It gives life and it takes it away. But too much money, it can infect you from the inside. Because yes, if you have money, you can afford clothing, housing, food, you can afford education and medicine, you can do all those things, but it's never enough, is it? When you have too much money, you can become like this black hole of endless need, where you never truly feel secure because you always feel that you need a little bit more. Let me give you an anecdote. I have a good friend of mine, he's my age, he's a brilliant guy. And this is a guy who makes more than a million dollars a year, generally speaking. He's very, very prosperous. And he's not a spender either. He spends, or he saves most of his money rather than spending it. So I had a conversation with him once, because I know how much he makes, I know how well he does. And I sat down with him and I asked him, I said, so when will you have enough money that you're going to feel safe and secure? $10 million? $20 million, like, when are you going to feel like you have it locked down? And he really thought about this for a second. And he said, you know what, Alex? I'm not sure. Because I set the goal for myself, and then when I reach that goal, I feel like it's not enough, 
And so I set the goal a little bit higher, and then I reached the goal again, and I set it higher. So honestly, I don't think it's ever going to be enough. And this is a good guy. This is not a bad guy. He's a good fellow. Like, he's a really good guy. But this is what I mean, how having too much money can make you this endless black hole of need. And Jesus, he understood that this was the case with money. Because money can literally stand in the way of our relationship with God and with other people. Our relationships with our friends and our family. Like, it has this ability to do this. Because money dictates so much of our well-being and so much of our happiness, I think it can be very easy for us to focus our entire lives on money. Because we think that's what we need if I'm going to survive, right? So, the problem is, is that we tend to live our lives in a very oxymoronic way. So, we work super, super hard when we're young, right? Like, we try to build up all of this retirement savings, and we're just killing ourselves to get all of it, and we ruin our health when we're young to earn all of this money so that when we retire, we can really start to live. How many of you have heard that or even said it? I've said it. I mean, I can tell you right now. I've said it too. That's when I'm going to start living my life is when I retire, right? And then when you get to retirement, you've destroyed your health so much, you've got to use all this money to regain it back, and then you can't really enjoy the retirement that you've saved so hard for all these years, right? Now, I don't want you to hear me as being judgmental because I'm in the same boat, okay? I'm no different from anybody else in here. That's why I say this is an important message for us. But we have to be willing to live in a different way. We have to be willing to try to see things from a different perspective. Because if we didn't focus so much on money, and that wasn't our goal in life, and we focus more on our relationship with God, more on our relationship with our friends, more on our relationship with our family, well, then you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, you don't have a lot for retirement, but at least you enjoyed your life while you had it, and when you were young. And I like to say, I'm in this category, guys. I'm in this category. I work super hard to the detriment of my own family, oftentimes. So this sermon is as much for me as it is for you. But Luke, he tells us there's a way that you can deal with this problem. There's a way that you can deal with it. And you know what Luke says? He says, it's easy, just give your money away. <laughs> That's the reaction I was hoping to get, right? <laughs> Why do we laugh at that? That's a real thing, isn't it? Like giving your money away? But we get all defensive, don't we? I worked hard for my money. I'm not going to give it away. And what are you trying to say anyway? Are you saying if I give away my money, I'm going to be happier? Well, yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of what Luke and Jesus are trying to tell us. And then we get more defensive and we say, so what am I supposed to do? Just go up to somebody on the street and just give them my money? Well, actually, yes. That's what Jesus literally tells us to do in the Gospels. Well, I don't like that idea. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give it to a well-vetted 501c3 charitable organization. That's what I'm going to do. Fine. That's what you can do. But you want to know where Luke tells us that we should give our money, our excess money, first and foremost? It's the church, which I know you're sitting there thinking to yourself, that's very self-serving of you, Alex. <laughs> to sit there and say the church is where you should give your excess money. I'm just telling you what Luke says, of course, but let me, let me qualify this a little bit so that you understand why he says this. So if your church is doing the things like the churches in Acts, 
which they're trying to build God's kingdom on earth, then you're doing the very things that we talked about this morning. You're trying to get away from taking all that wealth and accumulating it for yourself, and you're giving it out to a church that is trying to help the poor, to raise them up out of their circumstances, to help those who are struggling and suffering. And I will tell you right now, I am very proud that this is what this church is like. That you all care so much to actually make a difference in that way. This church is very focused on building God's kingdom here on earth. And so when you give your money in the offering plate, yes, it does go to help my salary, which I very much appreciate, let me tell you. And it goes to pay the salaries of other people too. And it keeps the lights on. But you know what, it does so much more than that. Because when you give that money, our whole focus here is to create God's kingdom, to serve the poor, to serve the needy, to help those who are struggling in life. And so in that way, this church is like an antidote to money becoming a virus in your life. We're trying to remove the barrier that money can create between you and God and you and your relationships with other people. And I have to say, I'm very, very inspired by the people in this church. When I come here and I have a need, something that I lift up and I say, hey, we need to do something about this, you all respond. You all are much, much more like Zacchaeus than you are like the rich fool, storing up treasure for yourself. You all will give. And it's been a wonderful thing to watch because what I've seen over the last four years, whereas most people hold on to their money and they say, it's mine and I need it and I can't let go of it because what's going to happen to me? You all are saying, you know what? Here, take the money. People can use it. Yeah, I worked hard for it, but if you can use it for something else, do it. And I want you to know that that's something that I really take to heart. I love coming to this church to see what you all do, how you respond to people in need. You make a difference in our community. You are building God's kingdom here on earth all the time. And inch by inch, we are getting that much closer. And I want to tell you that it's inspirational to me because you're showing me how I'm supposed to live. So thank you for doing that. Thank you for making a difference in this little corner of the world. And I want you to know that I'm proud to be here, and I'll be here for many years to come, thanks to what you all do. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.